Okay, a lot of questions. First question. Do you imagine I cannot meditate being peace due to strong negativity in the mind? I try to remove me. Dear Ajahn, I cannot meditate or be at peace due to some strong negativity in the mind. I tried walking in nature, sleeping and having a cup of tea to relax and let go, but that was not able to do so entirely. The fact is, it persists and makes me feel even more depressed. What should I do? Is it does pass, and sometimes we need a lot of patience, and sometimes when there is strong negativity in the mind, sometimes we lose the fact that you know, it does go eventually, and then you get positive again. One of the th- ways of doing that is that having the blood uh, transfusion. <laughs> you know what's coming, don't you? To get be positive blood. It's the best blood type. <laughs> but it's true that if it's strong negative in the mind, it kind of stops one being at peace. But a lot of times it can happen, you've got strong negative, but you just, oh crikey, this, I've had enough of this. And instead of like uh, stopping trying to meditate, you just even like lie down on your bed. And, you know, in your meditation position, not on the on the side where you go to sleep. And sometimes it kind of surprises you. It allows you to let go of like worldly stuff, like people and projects and stuff. And then after a while, you feel so much better. The world is like that. This is a human world. There's some really wonderful people, sometimes some stupid people. And sometimes it's nice to be rebellious. I'm not going to be negative because of them. I'm just going to totally forget what they do. And I'm going to just get in there and just do some meditation and have some beautiful mind states. Almost like to rebel against those other people. So the negativity can just, after a while, motivate you to let go. Dear Rajan, thank you for your amazing talks and service. I've heard hundreds of your talks and still enjoy it a lot. That's amazing. You must be, have dementia so every new talk is... <laughs> you don't remember it. That's one of the reasons I, I say I like teaching elderly people. Because <laughs> they forget the joke I said last week. But why I keep on repeating the same mistakes, unskillful habits and naive, ex- naive expectations from life? Thank you. That's actually why I t- tell the same old stories because you keep making the same old mistakes. <laughs> now after a while, the same old mistakes and the same unskillful habits, after a while they disappear. It's amazing. Sometimes you don't notice just how they disappear. Other people do. You come over here and you go back to Singapore and they say, have oh, you changed? You don't notice it, but they do. So actually I'm pretty sure that repeating the same mistakes you don't repeat them as badly as you did last time. You're getting better, but it takes a few lifetimes. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, which is a better realm for one to take rebirth, and how should we work towards it? Thank you. How many times we tell you to live in the present moment? You're not reborn yet. So 
best thing to do is to don't get reborn. Make a good job of this life, and then you don't have to get reborn ever again. That's the coolest. Do energy-raising methods, such as uh, sitting in a fire. No, that doesn't do it. Such as yoga, help with meditation states. Oh, it does things like yoga, help with meditation states, reaching nimitta or jhana capacity. You understand what the jhanas actually are. The jhana capacity, any other type of energy-raising methods, or like even calming methods like yoga, or acupuncture, Reiki, I don't care what it is, as long as it makes you healthy and allows you know, some of the, the bad things to uh, disappear from your body, of course it helps. But then you get to that certain stage when you're not really so concerned about your body because the body is tranquil, and when the body is tranquil it allows you to go inside. And the deeper you go inside, so the more the same more meditation techniques, nimittas, letting go, they're the ones which really work. Dear Ajahn Brahm, can you share with us the essential parts of the Buddha's funeral? Number one, you need someone to be dead. <laughs> He's got to die first. I don't know, can you stay in the present moment? Anyway, I intend to have one that is as simple as possible. You know the problem with people who would like to have simple Buddhist funerals? It's your relations. They don't let you. So I've, I've told you many times that if I have a Buddhist funeral, I would just like to be left in my cave. It might get a bit smelly, but you know, I'm the only one who smells it. Other than that, it's like going in the mulcher, the mulching machine, when you're dead, and it just goes back into the soil, with nothing left. That's also very, very good. Unfortunately, that we have laws and regulations. I do remember that story in the newspapers once, that in one of these places, I think it was Birmingham, you know, one of the suburbs there, that, you know, some people there were at home, they have these little semi-detached houses, and they thought, oh, the neighbours are having a barbecue. They didn't invite us, that's not fair. And they looked over the fence, and they weren't actually barbecuing, it's like a, a piece of meat. It was her old grandma who'd passed away, and they were cremating her. And that family got in big trouble. <laughs> What's wrong with that? You know, cremate your grandma, she like, you know, she was obviously not complaining. <laughs> but that's what she wanted to do, to be you know, cremated in the family, nice and cheap and easy. Unfortunately, that's what they got into trouble with the, uh, with the council. It's not council regulations to do that. But with the Buddhist funeral, the main thing is to make it useful. So you want to dispose of the body is one thing, and how you dispose of that is you know, usually uh, more effective to sometimes burn it. But these days, with the problem of um, climate change and so many gases going into the atmosphere, you know, that's actually quite energy intensive, it's not the best way. So people try other ways, and nice ways that sometimes they don't have a coffin, they have a basket. Like a wicker thing, which actually was much quicker. But everything is just really difficult you know, to dispose of a body. But that's actually just disposing of the body. And the rest of the thing is 
for the deceased person and for the people left behind. For the deceased person, it's nice to be able to make sure that they feel uh, they're um, respected. And a lot of the time they're still there, they can listen to what's being said. So you give them some, like a Dhamma, but Dhamma which they can understand. Simple teachings, and just important to remind them of all their good qualities they've done in the past. And for those who are left behind, one of the things is, I don't know why in these days, even Buddhist people, they feel so sad when somebody dies. And it's, this is just our nature. Please prepare yourself, you know, for your, your mum, your dad, your, um, your sisters, your friends, yourself, <laughs> you know, to die. It's part of life, there's nothing wrong with dying. And I don't know why people just feel so sad when somebody dies. Because we are attached. Exactly. But when you're attached, are you really that attached? So you get burnt when they get cremated as well? Do you go in the coffin with them? If you're that attached? Sometimes in those Indian traditions they would do that. No, the, the wife would actually jump in the fire after the husband. I think probably to tell him off for something, but I'm not sure. <laughs> exactly, yes. So that was just going a bit too far. It's nice, you know, to have compassion. But as I say, the best compassion has to be with wisdom. And you realise all those tears which you cry, they don't, you're not crying for the person who's died, you're only crying for yourself, your sadness. And how many people here, that when you die, would you want your loved ones to cry? No one does. And that's actually how disobedient and unfilial all these children are. So you can tell your friends, your loved ones, your children, when I die, please no tears. But one of the best funerals which I read about, which I haven't, didn't see, was that case of this American man. I don't know what religion he was. He had sort of cancer, you know, so bad, and I don't know if it was stage four, stage 24, something really advanced. So there was no chance of him sort of surviving. So he decided to arrange his funeral when he was still alive, a couple of days before his death. So he had the coffin there, and he was laying in it, but still alive, and they did a funeral service for him. And he said, the one nice thing about that, because at the funeral service, people do eulogies. They say all these nice things about you, what you've done, and and how well great person you were and how you looked after your family and did amazing things in difficult times. And he said, why is it that the person who's dead, the one they're talking about, never has the opportunity to hear this? And so he said, I'm going to have my funeral a couple of days before I die so I can hear all the people saying nice stories about me. And also so I can check who attends and then I can uh, uh, change my will before I die. <laughs> so anyway, you may think I'm being light-hearted, but no. I've done so many Buddhist funerals over those years. The actual form of the funeral is not really important, but the kindness, the letting go, 
the recollecting Dhamma. That is important. Your job is to send the person who's died off to a good rebirth, and that means actually connecting with them and making sure that they get inspired, remember their good qualities, and those people left behind, it's a great opportunity to teach. Because at a funeral service, two times I've always noticed that when you're talking, people actually listen. One is at the funeral service, and the other time is at a marriage. Maybe the rest of their life they don't listen, but when the marriage they do. You've got to be careful who you invite. Because one of the kings of Thailand years ago, um, four of his daughters were getting married, and were convenient to do the marriage on the same day, and to four other princes or whatever, so they invited one of these monks to give the talk and the blessing for the marriage. It was such an amazing talk, apparently, that the four men decided not to get married but become monks instead. <laughs> and that teacher never got invited back into the palace again. <laughs> How to deal with irrational fear, like, like fear of what's to come, the unknown, etc. I feel much anxiety, yet unable to calm my anxiety down. One, don't watch any movies on the, on the TV or on the, your iPad, because that's how movies work. Irrational fear. And some of those movies, you know it's not real. You know how it's going to end up. The American will save the world at the very last minute. It's not the Norwegian, not the Serb, not the, <laughs> the Singaporean. The Singaporeans never save the world. <laughs> it's true. It has to be American, and it has to be this really tough guy who's really a pain in the butt, but nevertheless he saves the world. <laughs> the other thing which I used to, I think it's exactly the same these days, that sometimes you have these horror movies, these monsters go attacking people, and some of the monsters are very, very dangerous. But I did notice when I was growing up, they would only attack young, beautiful women. <laughs> If you were old and ugly, you were safe. <laughs> Check it out, it's true. <laughs> it's movies, it's not the truth. So with irrational fear, fear of what's to come, because you enjoy fear. There's a certain pleasure to it, like a taste to it. That's why this taste, wasn't in some of those restaurants, you eat that fish, or the fish's liver or something, I don't know what it is. The yeah, the poisonous fish. And it's just basically... Have you ever eaten that? Anyone here? You have? What do you do that for? To try it. To try it. It's like to die. Thank you for your honesty. But I mean, it's so dangerous. But that fear adds a bit of sort of excitement to the meal. So that's one of the reasons why people like fear. Why do they go to like horror movies? You know you're going to get afraid. But if you don't want to get too afraid, get afraid and you go into a horror movie, again, don't listen to the sound. When you take the sound off, it actually, you know, it, sound, it actually looks just ridiculous. 
Anyway, that's irrational fear. I feel anxiety, you're unable to calm my anxiety down because you don't want to. The anxiety has a little, you're attached to the anxiety. It has some joy to it. If you didn't have that anxiety, people get bored. So one of the nice things to do is just stay there, test it out, and the anxiety doesn't, doesn't touch you at all. It's like you, the way to become a victim of anxiety is actually to just stay there. Don't move. And after a while the anxiety just gives up on you. You're hopeless. You don't play with anxiety. You can't be scared. That's a lot of time you know, with things like ghosts. You know, if a ghost ever chases you, you turn around and go boo to the ghost. One thing which I did find was that ghosts are afraid of monks. It was in Thailand. You can see us? Yeah. Ah! The ghost said. What am I do in this lifetime to guarantee that I meet the triple gem in my future lifetimes? Presuming I'm not enlightened by this time. Don't presume too much. Who knows? But to guarantee, there's no real guarantee except that if you keep you know, doing good Buddhist things, you hang around good Buddhists, you meditate, come to talks, you know, keep precepts and stuff, that becomes your character. And the way the Buddha said it, if it's a, again a tree, it leans to the west, then when it falls, it's going to fall to the west. So if you're leaning towards a triple gem, or even practicing right now, of course you're going to meet the triple gem in the next life. That's your inclination, you can't avoid it. I mean, look. Look at someone like myself, or Venerable Chanda. For myself, I was uh, English. None of my family were Buddhist. My father couldn't even spell the word. And so... How on earth did I become a Buddhist? How on earth did you know you, you really commit to the triple gem? So even though you're born, I must have had some very bad karma to be reborn in London. There's <laughs> hardly any Buddhists there. But then when you were, you know, you, you managed to find Buddhism, which was wonderful. And of course, like many people, you say that when I was seven, no, 16, when I was six, yeah, I'm being correct, 16, I passed my A-level exams, it's only 16, and then uh, I got these prizes, you know, for, I think the first time I got prizes, I didn't know what to do. So my teacher said, go and get uh, a book on mathematics just one book, and that will be presented to you. So I went, I did as I was told, I went to Foyle's Bookshop in London and looked at all these mathematics books, and they were just as boring as hell. And I thought, I'm not going to waste my first prize on a book like this. And so instead, you went the opposite side of the road. Foyle's Bookshop was a famous bookshop in Tottenham Court Road. And then I went across the road to the annex in the top story 
which was a book on weird religions like Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and also, I don't know why they had it up there, psychology. <laughs> that was a bit weird in those days. And so, instead of getting one book on math, I got a, a lot of books, including the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the only reason I got that was I thought, this is going to upset the headmaster when he presents it to me. <laughs> what on earth is this book? <laughs> I'm rebellious. But I bought a lot of books, and of course, a couple of those books were on Buddhism. And that's, I wanted to read books on all the different religions. I wanted to find out which one was me. It's called Market Research. And it was a Buddhism one which I liked so much. It wasn't that I liked it, I said, hey, this is how I, I think, this is what I believe. And I hadn't read a book on Buddhism before. It was weird. Dear Ajahn, in the Exposition of Non-Conflict Sutta, I can point to not insist on local language. Okay. Can this be interpreted regarding the translations of suttas from Pali into one other language and be used for chanting? It's a difficult one, chanting, not no, insist on the, the, any old language. The reason I like the Pali chanting, there's two reasons. One is that if I make a mistake, you don't figure out I'm making a mistake, so I get away with it. You don't know what I'm chanting. <laughs> and number two is, you know, once you learn the Pali, the, the translations are always difficult. You can never, you know, can you really translate from uh, Chinese into English really well? There's always something missing. That's one of the reasons which I've found, even, even like the Thai into English. You know, the, some of you may have been to Thailand, you know, if you're a man, you say, you know, how are you doing, Krap? If you're a woman, you say, how are you doing, Kat? And you know, it's not who you are, it's actually who you are, sorry, it's not who you are addressing, it's actually who's doing the talking. So, as a monk, or sorry, as a man, whoever I see, I say, how are you doing, crap? To man, woman, LGBTQIA+, everyone you say crap to. But as a woman, you always say can't, no matter who you're talking to. In English, it's the other way around. It depends who is receiving your talk, whether you say ma'am or sir or whatever. So, it's, it's the other way around. So some of those different cultural ways of speaking gets you very confused at first. But when you learn those, you find you're not translating just language, you're tra translating culture as well. Does that make sense? Very good crap. <laughs> I'm so lucky to have come across the last ticket for this retreat. Thank you to the Singapore folk for welcoming others. Can I please bag a spot for next year? <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahm, how do I make sure that I've experienced this week continues to grow? You've got no choice. Of course it continues to grow. Once the seed is in there, it grows, and sometimes even if you try and stop it, it still grows. It's like the weed has got into your mind and it's impossible to pull out. 
you've been brainwashed. That's why actually as a Westerner said many years ago, he said once you hear these teachings you can't forget them. He did leave and go somewhere else but he kept coming back again. He said, what have you done to me? <laughs> what is Buddhism's view on homosexuality or ideas that are against the convention? There's nothing wrong with homosexuality or gay, lesbians, transgender or whatever. And that's a wonderful thing. Why should there be? anything you know, against that. And one of the reasons why you are for that is because like anybody who is being uh, discriminated against, whether it's nuns or gay people or disfigured people or people with schizophrenia, that all these people are discriminated against. And after a while you give, these, give all, anybody a chance, even in monastic life, and they do a wonderful job. Now they, but unfortunately, in Thailand, they put a law out saying you're not supposed to ordain uh, gay people. And then, why? But fortunately, I was... I, I had a, a brain, you know, when I... Actually, I was going to say before I became a monk, I didn't lose my brain. <laughs> But at least I knew just you know, about Pali, and that was a wonderful thing. The reason I learned Pali was so I could better understand the Vinaya, the monastic rules. And when I did that, I came across this one phrase. It's in the commentary, but it's valid. It's a weird statement. They said, you know, if you're a, a pandaka, which is you know, the closest thing they have to uh, being a homosexual you know, in um, in the time of the Buddha, if you're, a, a, say, a homosexual for only two weeks of the lunar month, and the other two weeks, you know, you're uh, what they call straight, and then you can ordain as a monk for the two weeks you're not gay. It's weird. But anyway, I use that as an excuse. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, you're not gay this two weeks, are you? <laughs> and so I ordained them. And the people I ordained have just done so wonderfully well. And the senior one who I ordained, he used, to, he used to be homosexual, but being a monk, you know, you have to be celibate. And he's been celibate for, oh, I don't know how many years now, almost 20 years now. You know who he is? I don't, I don't mind saying because I don't think you'll be upset at me. He's a very, very good monk and he's been stable for such a long time as a monk. That's um, um, Ajahn de Sarano. Yeah, and he, he was very prominently gay, you know, before he became a monk. I'm very proud of him that he's done so well as a monk. He's very kind and, you know, very caring monk. He's a teacher now. And he's over up in Newby Buddhist Monastery looking after the, the monk side of that. Well done. So, what's wrong with anybody? As long as once you are in the Sangha, you're, yeah? Didn't the Dalai Lama say that, that gay sex was sexual misconduct? <laughs> he did. 
and he said, you can't be a Buddhist and be gay, period. And that was put in one of the newspapers. And when he put it in the newspapers, it was repeated in our local newspapers. And a lot of my friends, you know, people who remember our Buddhist society in Western Australia, they were shocked. They said, I thought we'd at last found the one religion, one path, where we were accepted. And so I wrote back to the West Australian newspaper and I said, with all respect to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he's wrong. Gay people are respected in Buddhism. And any gay, lesbians, transgenders, dot, 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 who wish to become members of our Buddhist society in West Australia, welcome. And I got a lot of praise, obviously, from the, from the gay lesbian uh, community. And I got you know, a few very bad comments from the uh, followers of the Dalai Lama. I said, you can't criticize the Dalai Lama. Why not? You can criticize me if I make a mistake, please do. Yeah? Is it scriptural? No, it's not. There's no justification for it at all. So because of that, it's very clear. That's one of the reasons I learned Pali, so I know what scripture and what isn't. So it's not at all. So a lot of times, even the Dalai Lama, he was fighting what he was taught, rather than just looking to see what actually the Buddha said. This wonderful sense of you know, real compassion, kindness, and openness in these teachings. Even like some people who were disfigured, I mean, Bada the Dwarf, he was, an he was an enlightened person, a great person. And even like novices at seven years of age becoming enlightened. And that's amazing. But anyway, uh, even I gave a talk on, I mentioned a few things about homosexuality, in Pokaksi Temple over in Singapore some years ago. Do you remember that? And then afterwards, um, some people, I said they rang up, they called up, I forget what department it was, and they complained about Ajahn Brahm is promoting homosexuality in Singapore, that's illegal. And then ABC, no, that's, that's Aung Bing true. She sort of wrote back to this department saying, at that time, the president of Singapore, uh, Prime Minister Go, Go, Go Chuk Tong, yeah. And he said, that's what he was saying as well. Ajahn Brahm is not promoting homosexuality. He just wants to defend. Not really defend, but protect. And so, Hung Beng Chu, got me out of trouble, and they found out that the people who were saying these things and trying to um, get me into trouble was a couple of Christians, born-again Christians, who were outside the talk at the time because they were worried that I was getting too popular. And so they just wanted to find some means. This is true find some means of lessening my popularity by getting me into trouble. And Aung Beng Chu came to my defence. And that was the end of the matter. Oh, it wasn't actually the end of the matter. 
the people, who's a member of religious affairs or whatever, but I forget who the authority was, but they told Ong Beng Chu, if those people come outside that temple again, when Ajahn Brahm's giving a talk, just give us a call. We'll arrest them. <laughs> Not me. Anyway, I'm trying to read these fast because there's a huge amount of them. How is it that animals can go to the human realm? Can they keep precepts? Even the human realm, you don't keep precepts, not all of you. <laughs> so they belong. One of those stories, I, I love this story, I was going to half tell it yesterday, there was, again, one of these monkeys in Thailand that somebody saw it on sale in the market and it had been abused, so they bought it. And what do you do once you've bought a monkey? They gave it to this monkey in one of the forest monasteries. This is not a joke, it's actually serious. And this monk looked after, this monk, that was Ajahn Thuy, he looked after this monkey. And the monkey just, you know, was after a while, he really got to love the other monks. And he identified with being a monk. So when those monks in the afternoon after doing their chores uh, had a cup of tea, the monkey also had to have a cup of tea. And the monkey had a mug and he was drinking his tea just like the other monks, just hanging out with them. He identified with them. But then also when any uh, wealthy woman would come down, come up there from Bangkok, sometimes the women were cheeky. You know, just having some fun. You know, that's what they thought. And then this lovely little monkey, he would go on to the first visitor, just like, go on to you first of all, and you'd pat it. Then he'd go on to the next one and you'd pat it. Then he would go on to the cheeky uh, woman's lap, and she would start patting, and he'd bite her. That's how he actually could get onto her lap. And so he bit so many, <laughs> so many... Um, he never bit the men, I think, because you know, he was trying to be protective of Ajahn Tui. And he bit so many of them, they thought, we'd have to send him you know, out of the monastery into the, the jungle so that he can, uh, uh, he can have a, a natural life rather than a life in a monastery. So they found a little island uh, in a big lake. And the, the second monk in that monastery uh, rode the boat out there and uh, let the monkey go into the forest. Monkey wasn't happy. And then about a week later, the head monk Ajantui, he did have some, some good meditations. He came here for a couple of times. And anyway, he, he had the, the vision that monkey was really not happy, was having a very difficult time getting any food, but also just uh, living in a, in a real jungle. He wasn't used to that. So he told the second monk, go back and see if you can find that monkey and bring him home into the monastery. And so the, sec the second monk went out there for the second time, and he just called you know, what they, the name of that monkey. And he heard something running towards him you know, through the trees in the jungle. This is monkey. And the monkey just jumped right into his arms, so amazingly quickly, and then bit the second monk. <laughs> <laughs> But he didn't run away, he said, no, just please don't ever do that again. 
And so they took him back into the monastery. And that monkey, he was always very protective of the monks. So any um, truck or loud noises outside the monastery, it's just like the dogs trying to chase the cars away. He would try and chase the, the lorries away, the trucks away, until eventually he fell under the wheel of one of those trucks. And that's how he died. And the head monk, he shouldn't have done this. The head monk could actually said, well, I, I've seen his dream of consciousness leave his monkey body and go into the nearby village where one of the village girls was pregnant. He said, I saw that monkey enter the woman's belly. And that means that that little child was to be reborn as the former monkey. And all the monks, because you go on arms round there, every day, they were all waiting to see what would come out. <laughs> and it was true. When that baby was born, they said he was excessively hairy. <laughs> Not like an ordinary baby. And they all knew it was a monkey before. Got reborn as a child. And that's a true story from one of the very powerful monks in Thailand. The next um, question. Dear Ajahn, where is the secret garden? <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. I can't tell you. Okay. Are we going to go over time? You don't mind, do you? Okay. Okay. So there was this um, Australian man from Sydney and he was trekking in the Himalaya mountains. And when he was trekking in the Himalaya mountains, you know, he was taking photographs. He was with a group, and he lost the group. You know, they went one way, he thought he was going to catch up with them, but he went another way. It was getting really late at night and dark. And it's dangerous in those mountains at night time. So he got really quite scared. But fortunately, he could see in the distance some lights. When the the sun was going down, you could actually see the lights of some buildings not far away. So he managed to get to those. It was a monastery. And so he knocked on the door and told what had happened as best he could. And he said, yeah, that often happens. People get lost in, the, uh, in this area. So please come in here. We can put you up for the night. We know where that uh, trekking group is going to go, so we can take you there tomorrow morning. He said, because you're a Westerner, you know, the, the abbot, he's got this bed which he never uses, which is like a Western bed in this office. So he, you can stay in there, and the abbot will stay somewhere else. And this Westerner was just so relieved. So they gave him something to eat, and then he went to sleep. But just around midnight, he was woken up in the abbot's room with this what can you call it? Not a sound. It was like music, like heavenly music, like nothing he'd ever heard before. The most beautiful sound he'd ever heard. And the tears was, was rolling down his cheek. And then that, he heard it very clearly. It was so soothing, and he was tired. So he soon fell into a really deep sleep, one of the best sleeps he's ever had. And in the morning, when he was woken up, got a breakfast and one of the monks was going to take him 
to where his friends had been staying the night before. But he just was saying, thank you so much for your hospitality. But by the way, that last night, I heard a beautiful sound, great music. What was it? And the abbot looked at him seriously. You heard that too, did you? Yeah, it was amazing. What was it? And he said, I'm sorry, I cannot tell you. That's a secret. He said, oh, please tell me. He said, I can't. You can only tell monks that secret. And he said, and so the Australian, from, he was from Sydney, got out his wallet, got out a hundred, hundred dollars, and said, okay, hundred dollars. He said, no, I can't tell you, it's a secret, said the abbot. Okay, a thousand. I can't tell you, said the abbot, it's a secret. No amount of money will make me reveal that secret. I only can tell it to monks. No matter how much this Aussie offered to the Buddhist monk, he just would not accept it. He said, look, you've got to go now, you can be late already. So, you know, he gave up on trying to find out the meaning of this amazing sound, the most beautiful sound he'd ever heard in the world. And so he went back and said thank you. When he got back to Sydney, he just couldn't get this sound out of his head. He'd, he'd been to the opera house and seen such amazing orchestras, but this was way, way better than that. And so he even just, it was stopping his sleep and he was just obsessed with this sound. He went to see psychologists and psychiatrists and nothing worked. So one year later, there's only one way he could deal with this problem. He flew, flew back to India, went up into the north, into the north, into the Himalayas, found that monastery, knocked on the door, found the abbot and said, do you remember me? I came here 12 months ago and I heard this beautiful sound, the most amazing sound I've ever heard. I can't get it out of my head. I have to know what that sound is. And the abbot said, look, I told you last time, I can't tell you. It's a secret, only monks can know. Exactly, said this man, ordain me as a monk. He was willing to ordain as a monk just to find out the origin of the most beautiful sound he'd ever heard in the world. And so the abbot said, well, it's, you know, it's a long training. You know, in our monastery, it's two years before you can become a monk. Similarly in that monastery, are you willing to spend two years training before I ordain you as a monk? I have to, he said. No, this memory of this sound is driving me crazy. I have to know what it was. Okay, said the monk. So this Australian started the long process of you know, ordination as an Anagarika, first of all, then as a novice. And after two years, it was his big day, he had the full ordination as a Buddhist monk. Have you heard this story before? <laughs> a full ordination as a Buddhist monk. And so as soon as he would have been ordained as a Buddhist monk, he said to the abbot, right, three years since I heard that sound, I'm a Buddhist monk, tell me what it was. And the head monk said, oh, I can do better than that. 
I will show you. Please, tonight, just before midnight, come to my office and I will show you what the sound is, if you are prepared for this. He said, yeah, I have to hear this. I am prepared. So they took him into the abbot's room just before midnight. And in the back of that room, the abbot pulled back a curtain, revealed a secret door. There's a very old, ancient, oak wooden door. And just at midnight, the abbot took out a set of keys. The first one was a wooden key. He put it in the keyhole and opened the door. And at that time, the music started again. He hadn't heard it for three years. And it was just so thrilling. It went through every cell, bone, artery of his body, just thrilling him. It was not of this world, it was supernatural and so beautiful. And he noticed once the wooden door was opened, there was a passageway and there was another door at the end of that passageway. And the abbot walked towards the second door, found it was solid iron. He took out this iron key, opened the door and pulled the door open. It creaked, hadn't been opened for years maybe decades. Some of these monasteries are so old. And as they opened that second door, the iron door, you could hear the music more clearly. And it was absolutely gorgeous. It was amazing. You know, the tears were flowing now and his heart was really beating. There was another door at the end of the next passage. And this was a silver door. You know, with lots and lots of expensive inlays in that silver. The abbot looked at him just to check that he was okay. Shall we go through? Yes, I have to, said Diossi. So he took out a silver key, opened that door, and he could see there was one last door at the end of the passageway, a golden door. It's worth a fortune, but it wasn't just gold. It had jewelry and diamonds and rubies, I don't know what else set into the golden door. And you could see just from underneath the door, there was this light, this amazing supernatural light coming underneath the door. And the abbot said, on the other side of the door, you will see where this music comes from. Are you ready? <laughs> he said, some people go crazy. Now the abbot was compassionate. You know, you've got to be responsible. I said, it's that some people just go mad when they see this. You know, are you really prepared? And the Australian, he knew that the abbot was being serious. And he thought about it and he said, look, I've waited three years for this. If I don't find out what this sound, where it comes from, I'll go crazy. So I have to see it. Please open the door. And the abbot got out the gold key, turned it in the lock, and opened the door. You know what it was? I can't tell you, you're not monks. <laughs> I'll tell you later.
that's really st- sadistic, isn't it? Why are monks not allowed to disclose whether they're enlightened or not, but the Buddha made known about other enlightened beings during his time? Yes, I can tell if other beings are enlightened, but I can't tell personal stuff. It's all about non-self, because these, these are not personal attainments. Usually the way to find out, <laughs> yeah, you know this, this is not actually a joke, but it's actually true, that usually, just before you die, you know, when there's nothing, no personal benefits or personal problems you know, with being enlightened afterwards, if, if, you know, if Venerable Chandra said she was fully enlightened, all her life would become hell. You know, imagine what she could do. She could actually read people's minds, so they'd probably give her a job, because uh, she's English, uh, at the Heathrow Airport. They wouldn't need to have all these electronic things to find out if you're carrying uh, bombs or something. She'd just take a look and say, yeah, he's a terrorist. No, she's not. <laughs> and she'd always be perfectly right. It'd be so fast. And if, if um, say, Eileen was fully enlightened, at last, Singapore would get a gold medal in the high jump in the Olympic Games. She wouldn't jump, she'd be sitting cross-legged and rise over the bar. <laughs> There's lots of problems if people know you're enlightened. So that's why people keep it quiet. But what the exception is, is when you're dying. You know, you know you're about to die. And then people actually ask you, you know, in your monastic life all those years, have you got any um, experiences of jhanas, psychic powers, enlightenment? And that's usually the traditional time you can tell people. So the way to, there's a few doctors in, in here. I'm sure you can get some potion that you can give uh, Venerable over there. And he thinks he's dying. <laughs> And you say, come on, what have you been doing? <laughs> That's not how you get it out of people. There's another way. Sorry? There's another way. How's that? Well, you can tell other monastics. Yeah, you can tell other monastics, yeah. But even that, when you tell other monastics, you say, after I tell you, please keep it quiet. But this was Chi uh, Kuang. She's a... a, a, a Korean Buddhist nun lives over in uh, Victoria. That's uh, the uh, the east coast of Australia, and she was told by her teacher, "If ever you do get enlightened, please keep it secret. Otherwise, you'll have to spend the rest of your life proving it to others." That's very good advice, and as a monk or a nun, you can understand that. People will be testing you out. What makes a Buddha a Buddha, not just an Arahat? That's an excellent question. Because the Buddha was like the first Arahat in this um, dispensation. A Buddhist practitioner is not a a Buddhist trans. A Buddhist practitioner is not as strongly attracted to sensory pleasures or be de- desires as as other people. As a lay person, I find it a bit odd. I'm a bit lost for words describing to others 
why I am not so interested in cars or holidays as others. It's like I've got some secret knowledge that others want to understand. Can you please uh, talk about being quietly different in the lay world? A lot of times you may feel that you're different, but other people respect you for that. Now, I was a practicing Buddhist when I was at university, and when I was there, I asked my friends who weren't Buddhists at all, you know, would drink. I said, what do you think of me being a Buddhist? I remember what they said, we really uh, admired you because you never told us to be Buddhists. You let your room to be used for parties, but you never drank alcohol yourself, but you never told us not to drink alcohol. And that sort of kindness and just non-judgmentalism, they said that's what impressed them most of all. So you may think that you're a Buddhist and that you are different than others, you don't want to go on holidays and stuff. Other people actually respect you for that, if you ask them. I respect you for that. <laughs> well, I'm biased. Can you please tell the story of how the cat fox to be... Oh, the cat went to heaven story. Look, I can't resist that one. That's one of my favorite stories because if we don't finish all the, the rest of the... Um, what I can do is actually, the other questions I can do tomorrow morning, you know, instead of the talk. Or we can actually, we can do it tomorrow morning at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. But the cat that went to heaven is a beautiful story. I read this as a lay person in Wat Buddha Padipa in London when I was still a lay person. And it was hard to get a copy of that book. It was the most read book in the whole library in Wat Buddha Padipa. And the story was of this painter. It was, it was I think, it was written about 100 years ago in uh, no, a Westerner who was living in Japan. And she told the story of this very poor painter who had a housekeeper but nothing else. He wasn't famous enough or rich enough to actually to sometimes even feed himself. And so the one day his housekeeper, or sorry, the one day the monks from the local temple came round and said, now we're asking uh, someone to paint a, a mural, actually on, on a piece of... Uh, canvas, a mural of the Buddha's enlightenment. And especially, uh, they said, a time, according to their tradition, when all of the animals came to pay respect to the Buddha before he passed away into Nibbana. And he said, we're not asking you yet, but we are go- can we put your name in the hat and we're going to draw out the winner and we're going to commission them to paint. And that was just a big opportunity for this very poor painter because if he, if he did get that permission to paint, that would make his reputation. And of course his name was chosen. So the monk gave him a little bit of money to get all the materials to paint, but also he'd get something to eat as well. 
So his housekeeper went to the market. When she came back, she came back with quills and ink and the parchment and some food. And in the bottom of the basket, there was this little cat. A little cat hardly put its nose above the basket. It was so, um, not scared, but uh, didn't know whether the painter would accept it into the, the family. And as soon as he saw that cat, the painter said, what did you buy a cat for? You know, we're struggling even to feed ourselves. How can we ever feed a little cat like that? Well, the cat was so cute. The housekeeper said, well, I think you need something to be a friend while you're being, doing this painting. It's a very good cat. And the painter looked at that cat and it melted his heart. He said, oh, okay. And so the cat became part of the family. And every day, the painter would meditate before starting the painting. And the cat would just sit next to him, so quiet. And the first day, he meditated and painted the Buddha laying on the bed between two sal trees at Kusinara. And the next day, he painted like an elephant paying respect to the Buddha, because the elephant was one of those who appeared in Buddhist stories many times, and a lion, and you know, a dog, a jackal, all these animals which you see or hear about in the Buddhist Jataka tales and others were there. The little cat was wondering, when is he going to paint me? And then it's like the painter knew what the cat was thinking and said, look, I can't paint you because cats are always so independent and they never came to pay respects to the Buddha in our tradition. I can't. The poor cat looked so miserable. But he kept on painting until the last animal was painted in the series of animals, but not the little cat. And that painter looked at his little cat. It's like, I can't, it's not been done. But then after a while, the painter, knowing that this would ruin him, painted the cat, the very last animal, who, who you know, was going to pay respects to the Buddha. And when he's finished, even the housekeeper said, what do you do that for? You've ruined the painting. It will not be accepted now. And sure enough, the monk came, knowing the painting had been completed, and said it was just excellent brushwork, it's a beautiful painting. When he saw on the end of this big uh, canvas, there was a cat at the very end. The monk just froze and said, we'll give you some money, but tomorrow morning we'll have to burn that canvas. There is no cat allowed you know, to see the Buddha at the very end of his life. It's not what you should have been doing. You made a mistake. And so the, the, um, the painter said, yes, but I had to do that out of compassion for my... Oh, I did, should have said, as soon as the cat was painted in that sort of uh, scene, 
the little cat couldn't believe his luck. Saw himself in the painting. And he died of happiness. Right there, went to heaven. But then the, the monk said, we will, we'll take the painting, because we said we would, but we'll burn it tomorrow morning. Destroy it. So the, the painter knew that he was ruined. No one would ever trust him to do a painting ever again. And even the householder didn't know what he was going to do, she was going to do. And the following morning, he's woken up early. Come! You've got to come to the temple right now. So he got up, not knowing what was going on. Housekeeper went with him. And when they went to the temple, that painting hadn't been burnt yet. There's a big crowd of monks and lay people staring at it. And he looked at it, where he had painted that cat. It was just a blank piece of, of um, canvas. The cat had disappeared. When they went to the front of that canvas, in front of the elephant, was a little cat with a Buddha's hand on top of it. <laughs> a miracle. <laughs> the cat that went to heaven. One of the reasons I like that, it was a, a mix of compassion and rebelliousness. Yes, there was no like domestic cat, you know, in who paid respect to the Buddha. Not in the time of the Buddha, but now it could. And that was supposed to be a true story. I don't know if it is, but it should be. The cat that went to heaven. I've told that story many times, it still makes me teary-eyed. It's beautiful. Acts of compassion. He gave up being a successful... Well, he did become a successful painter. But that's actually the story of the cat that went to heaven. I managed to order about two or three copies of that for our Buddhist society. They all disappeared. I don't know where they've gone. They're beautiful, though. That makes sense? Okay, I've only got through half the questions. I'm sorry about that, but I'll do it tomorrow morning instead of the talk. Is that okay? Okay, you've had a long day, cause especially with the talks and stuff from the nuns. So. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Okay. Sorry? Should be questions about the beginning. Yeah. Should I try that and just do that one now? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here it is. I thank you very much for your decision to ordain bhikkhunis, as I have benefited a lot from their teachings. Could you talk a little about the background of Vinaya concerning bhikkhuni ordination? Is that the one? Okay. I did not ordain bhikkhunis. I cannot. Bhikkhunis are ordained, or Venusari was ordained by other bhikkhunis. By Venerable, what's her name again? Tataitataloka. So what happens there is according to the Vinaya, the rules, that first of all monks could ordain bhikkhunis, that was how it started off. 
And then the Buddha said, no, once there are plenty of bhikkhunis, then the bhikkhunis ordain their own group. So the bhikkhunis have to be there to ordain the bhikkhuni. And the monk, monks would just confirm that the ordination was done properly. So it was always called a dual ordination in front of the bhikkhunis first and then the bhikkhus. And now what happened is a long time ago the number of bhikkhunis got less, 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 less and less. And even sometimes the bhikkhus got less, less, less and less. You all know that was the about, was it two, three hundred years ago in Sri Lanka, there was no more bhikkhunis left, bhikkhus left. So I think the Dutch were running Sri Lanka then and they sent one of their boats over to Thailand to get some bhikkhus from Thailand to ordain more bhikkhus uh, over in Sri Lanka. And then a couple of those boats uh, sank. But then the last boat, they managed to get some bhikkhus there and they revived the bhikkhu sangha in Sri Lanka. But also in the history of Sri Lanka, which was well recorded, Sri Lanka was asked to send some of their bhikkhunis, fully ordained bhikkhunis, over to Taiwan to resuscitate the bhikkhuni order in Taiwan, which they did. So the bhikkhuni order in Taiwan actually originated from Sri Lanka. Of course, later on, those bhikkhunis started to wear different robes, like the Mahayana robes. But they still do the same um, ceremony for ordination. So and it's the ordination ceremony, not the colour of the robes, makes you a nun or big fully ordained bhikkhuni or not. You are a Buddhist nun before you're a Buddhist Mahayana nun. Even right now, Venerable Bhikkhuni Chanda, if she wanted to, she can become a Mahayana nun. She wouldn't need to reordain, just change the colour of their robes, maybe do different chanting, but her ordination is valid. So you're a Buddhist bhikkhuni, first of all, before you're Mahayana or Theravada. That's one of the reasons why the difference between the monastic sanghas of Mahayana and Theravada is not that much. So much so, especially the, so the Korean, uh, South Korean sangha, they've come to our monastery, we've gone to their monasteries, they spent rains there with us, we spent, I don't know if we spent rains with them, but they do the same thing. We allow them to come into our patimokha ordinations. They join in, even though they wear um, Mahayana uh, Jogje order uh, robes, because their vinaya is comparable. And their ordinations are comparable. So we have the same lineage from the Buddha. So once we know there are bhikkhunis, Buddhist bhikkhunis. There weren't any Theravadas for a while, but there were Mahayana bhikkhunis. And that's all you need to actually to do that first part of the ordination to ordain new bhikkhunis. And then the monks to come in afterwards to do the second ordination. That's the legal part of it, and it's valid. They also have, even though the Buddha said, well, let's do it uh, with a dual ordination, still the Buddha never rescinded the single ordination just done by the nuns. And 
legally, according to the Buddha's Vinaya, you cannot sort of say that cannot be done. Only the Buddha can take away that allowance. So even if the nuns, the bhikkhunis, ordained some of their um, disciples, the bhikkhunis, that would still stand. The bhikkhus. And I think it was the first one, wasn't it? The bhikkhunis doing the. The bhikkhus only came later. That's what it's I. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's true. Yeah. Okay, I see what you mean there. Yeah. So these things haven't been rescinded, so we can do it that way. But now we've got bhikkhunis, we always had bhikkhunis, and it didn't look like. Theravada bhikkhunis, but they were bhikkhunis. So it can be done. And it was actually Venal Bhikkhu Bodhi was the first one who told me about that. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's possible. Before we thought it wasn't possible, but it is. And so the ones we knew it's possible, then why not? So we did it. Why not? So there were four nuns. One of the nuns was Venal Sevi. She wanted to be a bhikkhuni. Why not? And the point was that when we mentioned that, that because I was part of Wapapong, I was called into a meeting with all the monks of Wapapong, Achen Chad passed away now, to discuss the matter. And basically, you know, I always thought when I was young that Wapapong knew the Vinaya. They did not, please excuse me, I respect some of my friends, people like Ajahn Liam, but a lot of them do not know the Vinaya. They make really some, sometimes very big mistakes. And they don't know about bhikkhuni ordination because they're never interested in it. So those ordinations were valid. And just the reason why it caused a problem is because in, uh, in Thailand rather than Burma, rather than sort of Sri Lanka, in Thailand, the Thais actually migrated from uh, Yunnan province. It's a Chinese culture mixed up with uh, Indian culture. And the Chinese culture has a lot of hierarchy. You know, you know this better than I do. In Confucian culture, you're supposed to sometimes believe what your teacher says. Is that correct? filial piety, hierarchies, believing in the elders, no matter what they say. And so because of that, you're never supposed to challenge the king of Thailand. If you do, remember that time that people criticized his dog and they got put in jail for that. And so that hierarchy is also for the monastics as well. The senior monastic says this is what should be done then you have to accept it. The problem was that I was becoming a senior monastic and I knew my Vinaya more than anybody. Maybe even Ajahn Sumedha said that the last time I saw him. He said, I understand you know the Vinaya better than I do, but please don't do it, the ordination. Did he say why? Sorry? Did he say why not to do it? No, he said I wouldn't do it. It wasn't because he was concerned with what the Thai Sangha would do. I did go and meet with the senior Thai monks 
you know, what they call the Somdets and Sangharaja. And they said, you've done nothing wrong. No problem. It was a political issue. Not a Vinaya issue, but political issue. Uh, and there was, now there are bhikkhunis in Thailand. You can't stop it. But they're not accepted yet. Not accepted. They're there, they go on arms round, people really respect them. But, you know, just keep it quiet. You can't. So the vinya allows it. There's no doubt about that. And even at the time, the senior forest monk at the time, Ajahn Mahabhua, and Ayatataloka went to visit him. And when she went to visit him, the, the monks said he couldn't get into his presence straight away. And you know, she said she was a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained bhikkhuni. And then the monks said, oh, you can't come and stay in here. And they said, but we know there's a, a nunnery close by where you can stay overnight. Better leave now because the sun's going down. But then the word came from Ajahn Mahabhura, no, she can stay. They gave her a place to stay and invited her to come for the evening meeting. And when Venerable, uh, what's her name? Sorry, Ayatataloka, when actually she turned up, you know, she was sitting on the floor with the lay people. And that's when Ajahn Mahapur said, No, you're a bhikkhuni. You have to come up here and sit on the stage with the other monks. And that, everyone was quiet. They didn't believe that was possible. But because Ajahn Mahapur said it, she had to come up and sit with the other Sangha. And Ajahn Mahapur said, she's not the same bhikkhuni as us, but she's a bhikkhuni. And that's all you really need. So it's confirmed that she was a bhikkhuni by the head uh, forest monk at the time. It was the teacher of the king. That was actually pretty impressive. When I mentioned that at that meeting, they weren't interested in listening about that. But anyway, so anyway, that was just 13 years ago. I don't know why it hasn't changed yet. Yeah, and that's because that should really change in England. That's why I just wanted to stay there a bit longer. It's not just for you, it's just for. Everybody, whenever you see there's something happening like that, it, it really hurts you. It'd be wonderful to be accepted as you are here. She always said it's lovely to be in Perth. You know, everybody supports her, gives her food, and you know, says what a wonderful teacher she is. But when it goes to you know, a place like England or even Scotland, they don't have the presence of bhikkhunis there. If you go there, how many bhikkhunis will be in UK when you go there? Just one. It's, it's a bit disgusting. One terabyte. I don't know, there might be another There might be another big south of the but you don't see them. I've never seen them. Yeah. But anyway, it will change. It can't last. Anyway, and I can't last sitting up here teaching when you all want to go to bed. <laughs> So have a sad, 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 sad. Sad.